WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, our guest is Jennifer Pictou, a member of the Aroostook Band of Micmac. She is the current Tribal Historic Preservation Officer uh, for the band, and she's also the new curator uh, of education for the Abbey Museum. Um, before I introduce her officially and bring her online here, uh, I just want to read a little bit about her, uh, her bio. Um, she's a member of the Aroostook Band of Micmacs, and again, she's the new curator of education at the Abbey Museum. She's the former executive director of the Bangor Museum and History Center. She holds a bachelor's degree, or degrees, plural, uh, in fine art and cultural anthropology and finished her graduate work at the University of Southern Maine uh, in American and New England studies. She has been in the field of public culture and history for more than a decade, having worked at several of the country's largest museums, such as the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Mystic Seaport in Connecticut. Over the last year, Jennifer has brought the Bangor Museum and History Center to the status of a multi-award winning museum with two national awards for the uh, Bangor Museum uh, History Center work with the Bangor High School. Well, welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. Uh, we'll start out with, uh, if you could just tell us a bit about uh, your background, you know, where you're from, and whatever you want to tell us. Oh, well, I always sound much better on paper. <laughs> I, I think everybody does. Um, as, as you stated, I, I am a member of the Aroostook Band of Micmacs, and, uh, well, I grew up in Aroostook County, so I'm a county girl through and through. Um, grew up in Mars Hill and uh, have been very active with uh, my tribe um, on and off for the last, oh gosh, 21 years now. So how long have you been uh, the um, historic preservation officer? Uh, this will be two years as of May. What kind of things does a, a historic preservation officer do? I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. Uh, usually what, what we take care of is uh, cultural resources on tribal property. That means that land that is held in trust by the Aroostook Band of Micmacs, um, I am responsible for seeing that um, surveys are done and done appropriately when we want to build on tribal land. Um, if we want to put in a parking lot, that there's an archaeological survey that's done beforehand. Um, if we find anything, it's my responsibility to um, make sure those things are handled appropriately, cataloged appropriately, stored properly. Uh, I also do um, what the National Park Service affectionately calls, calls my caseload, and uh, <laughs> that means I get a lot of mail. 
uh, anyone in the state that wants to do some shoreline stabilization out at their camp or put a new pier in or anything like that must apply to the state historic preservation officer, but they also need to apply to the tribes as well. And I do uh, a lot of those uh, case reviews, uh, a lot of looking at maps, uh, deciding if it's going to be something that will affect any cultural property or resources that uh, belong to us or that we know of that we have a tribal connection to. So are those, uh, the camps that you mentioned, are those in the uh, Aroostook County area only? No, this is statewide. I've actually been quite, um, quite... (laughs) taken aback by the number of folks that are doing building projects in the state uh, surrounding these areas because uh, last year we I did well over 200 of those cases. It looks like it might be more uh, this year. Um, these, are, these are not just camps, but these are uh, towns that want to build a new school. Um, the Department of Transportation that needs to go out and uh, replace culverts, uh, stabilize bridges. Uh, This is also the federal government. I work with the um, Department of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the National Guard. Uh, they, if they want to do something in and around uh, Maine, then they also have to reach out to the tribes and uh, get our our cooperation. Now, you're not the only uh, person that does this for the tribes, are you? You there are others? No, there are others. Yes, um, Chris Sokalexis is the uh, thippo uh, for the Penobscots, and Donald Soctoma is the thippo for the Passamaquoddies. Currently, the Maliseets do not have a thippo. Hmm. So. Do you get called in for the Maliseeds? Uh, <laughs> or, or no? Nobody. No, no. Currently, um, if a tribe does not have a tribal historic preservation officer, then they are still under the jurisdiction of the state historic preservation officer. So if mm-hmm. something came up that involved the Maliseeds, they would certainly be involved, but uh, the lead you know, point of contact for, for that um, would be the state historic preservation officer. I know they've had some building projects that they've been doing uh, over the last few years, and they've had to coordinate with the with the SHPO, the, the state historic preservation officer. Once uh, once a tribe actually gets their, their plan approved by the federal government, um, then the THIPO, the tribal historic preservation officer, actually acts as the SHPO on tribal property. Okay. So I will work in concert with them, uh, certainly, and I keep in contact with them on the state level, um, but they're not the first ones called if we find something on our own land. Yeah. So theoretically here, what happens when you find something? Oh, gosh. Well, we have a, in our case, and I can't speak for, for all tribes, certainly, but in our case, um, we have a contract archaeologist uh, that if we do find something that an archaeological dig uh, would have to happen, um, the site would need to be studied, the historical and cultural ramifications uh, studied. Um, no work could happen at the site until the, the dig was completed. And then uh, that information goes back to the tribal community because it, it happened on our land. Um, we would want to know. And there have been many cases throughout the country where 
tribal historic preservation officers and archaeologists and historians have worked together to bring uh, pieces of lost history back to tribal communities. And one case in particular, I can't remember which tribe it was, but they were actually studying the remains, human remains that they found on tribal land, and this was this was out west. And once it was all done, they did a great presentation for their tribal community. And the one part in particular I remember so vividly is the arrow point that they had. And the archaeologist was pointing out on a slideshow where they found this arrow point in this person's chest. And he made this whole cultural connection that we can tell, you know, this, we can tell it was your tribe's arrow. And we can tell, you know, from what was remaining. And it was just so incredibly rich and full of information. And they panned out across the audience of the tribal community that he was speaking to. And they were wrapped. They were just... The attention was so intense at that point because this is something that um, they never would have known without this process. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, on one side, it's it's great for uh, for the tribes and the in the history, and but on the other side, it holds up uh, construction and uh, progress. Yes, it does. Um, there was a case of a tribe, and and I won't name which one it was, but there was a case of a tribe. Um, in southern New England a few years ago that a, a local company was doing some construction and came across some human remains and that tribe was called in and the remains were immediately removed um, under the guidance of the tribe and housed at the tribe until they could be reburied because it turned out to be a hitheretofore unknown tribal uh, burial ground. Wow. So these things do happen, um, and that's why it's so very important that, you know, when people do construction and they find uh, bones or, or shards of, of pottery or, or um, arrowheads and, and things like that, you know, don't just cover them over because there's just so much that we can learn. Yeah, and it, it's, if I remember right, you, when you took, when you came back to Maine, and took the job with uh, Bangor. Uh, were you also the preservation officer then, or did that happen later? No, that um, that happened during my my time at the Bangor Museum and History Center. Um, I had been working with the tribe prior to that to um, help develop the plan, because you have to develop the plan and submit it to the federal government. And of course, they always find something wrong with it, so they'll send it back to you for review and, and revising. Uh, so it took us a while to get it approved. Then there's the, the grant process. You don't automatically get money. You do have to apply on an annual basis. This was a, you know, applying to be yes. the, the, what do you call it, THIPO? Or, yes. Yeah. Some people say THIPO. Some people say TIPO. Whatever. <laughs> That's Shippo, what I say. TIPO, <laughs> They just call me Jen at the office. That's fine. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but once you, once you got that uh, designation, uh, it was so important to you that you decided uh, that you were not going to leave that. You're going to keep it, uh, but then uh, keep on also working in in uh, at, at the Bangor Historic Society Center. Is that what a BHC? Yes, it's a um, BMHC. Okay. Um, the the designation, the legal designation, is Bangor Historical Society. So uh, okay. uh, that's the easiest thing to call it. So. 
What did you do there? Um, I was the executive director of the um, Bangor Historical Society, and uh, they had they had changed the name before I arrived to Bangor Museum and History Center. Um, because they really wanted to get away from the idea of, you know, the small town historical society, kind of grandma's attic uh, type of collecting. And what I mean by that is a lot of times when, when people have elderly folks or relatives pass away, you know, it's usually the daughter, son, grandchildren go into grandma's house uh, and they clean out the house and they find things that they know in their heart it has some kind of historical value or it may have been important to the family uh, or to the person who owned it but not necessarily relevant to life today. So this is how a lot of things tend to end up in historical societies. Uh, we had been moving on from that and not just collecting everything, but really looking at the collection in terms of paring down what time periods we didn't have artifacts for, what we really wanted to build up, what we wanted to do as far as streamlining our message to our mission. Uh, so I ran the everyday operations with a, uh, a small dedicated staff, and we did great things. Hmm. Yeah, because I was just in your intro the award that uh, you, you received for the Bangor uh, High School. What was that all about? That was, uh, wow, that was just awesome. Uh, we had worked on a program uh, regarding the Great Fire of 1911 in Bangor that burned 400 buildings in a matter of hours. And that was the turning point in the city's history from when it was a, a city of wood. The buildings were made out of wood, and then when it rose from the ashes like like the phoenix that everybody likes to say uh, it became a city of stone so in that in that event there were a lot of things that happened and the community and the museum and the high school worked together and i have to give big props to uh margaret chernowski and deb averill from the bangor high school deb averill was the uh, librarian and uh, Margaret Chernowski was the uh, mapping teacher. And she had this great idea to do some mapping. And she said, my kids in my class will ask questions. They'll do a whole research project. And she goes, I, I, I'd really like to do it on the Great Fire. So what happened is these kids asked questions like, who had the wealth? Where were the wealthy people? Where were the poor people in Bangor before the fire? Where were the animals? What were the wind patterns that day? And did the wind patterns have any effect on the fire's path? And they followed the the train of, of reasoning from uh, question and inquiry. Um, the museum helped them by bringing in uh, people, his local historians, to talk about the fire. Uh, primary documentation, photographs, things like that. And what happened is this wonderful, wonderful uh, series of posters that teams of two uh, young people did. Uh, and it was fabulous to look at all of this data. And they laid it out on these fantastic maps that we put up in the fire exhibit. And then later we submitted to the um, American Association for State and Local History. Uh, we won an award of merit for leadership. And out of the winners of those awards, only 5% are eligible to receive the History and Progress Award nationwide. Mm -hmm. 
And these are state-level history organizations and museums, local history-level museums and historical organizations. And we were lucky enough to actually win one of those History in Progress Awards as well. And we know that only three were given out in our category nationwide. So we, you know, over the moon for the work that we did. And we were so fortunate to be able to pair up with Bangor High School. Really? And and whatever happened to all the work you you did on that, the the mapping and the posters, uh, where are they? Uh, The posters are still at the um, Bangor Historical Society. And we do... uh, before I left, we were we were thinking about wouldn't it be great if we could get a few years together of, of these different mapping projects that they did because the following year um, that same class did some mapping of Maine and the Civil War for us to coincide with our Civil War exhibit. And um, we were thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great to do a book? But uh, I don't know what's going to happen with that now. The thought just came occurred to me when you were saying that <clears throat> Uh, in in the uh, tribal history, uh, we've had a lot of uh, events, historical events occur, and uh, and you know we've had so many uh, wars, you know, a couple hundred years, uh, at least a hundred years of war. Uh, it might be interesting to uh, do some mapping on those wars, and uh, I don't know, just a thought. That's a great idea, actually. <laughs> that is, there's, there's a, that's a great idea. In fact, um, I know that there's another tribe that's working with an American Battlefields uh, grant to actually map out, locate, do some archaeological surveys, um, and, and map uh, the actual site of a great battle uh, during a war in the 1600s. So those possibilities are out there. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, what comes to mind is the, uh, is, is of course, the King Philip's mm-hmm. war and then the, the, uh, the, the Kennebec, uh, um, was it Kennebec? No, it was uh, Skowhegan that uh, was a, a, a massacre in uh, Skowhegan. Oh, that need, it'll come to me. I'm, you know, I'm getting, my, my brain is getting uh, calcified here. <laughs> It'll come to you at 2 o'clock it in the will. morning like me. I'll wake yeah. up and go, Moody Blues or something. Absolutely. But there are, I mean, there are uh, so there are lots of sites that we don't talk about. Um, and there were so many, you know, I, I taught a, a university class, and we covered all of the treaties and the wars, and there were lots. I mean, it took us two weeks to cover those. So there was, there's a lot of material there just needs to be uh, looked at that's all yes and you made a good point that uh, there are a lot that we don't talk about um it's not that that things are taboo uh but the long-held feeling by tribes as you know and particularly when you're in a position like mine with public culture and history um you know we don't have to share everything and that's one of the inherent rights of a cultural people is uh, the right to hold back information that, that they deem necessary. Right. Norwich Walk Massacre. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. That's, that's it. I knew it would come to me. Um, so, okay. So then um, I'm kind of curious about your time with the Pequot Museum. I, you know, I was down there once or twice, I think, and I found it fascinating uh, how they recreated the villages and the, the 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 just the images of 
of the natives, and like in the when you first walk in, there's this big canoe, and there. Uh, what what did you do for educational programming down there? Um, well, I have to say that that was a really formative experience for me, as far as uh, museums and working with um, getting native culture uh, out to people who were really curious. Um, as you know, the Pequot Museum is about a quarter of a mile away from the casino, but but nobody really knows about it because the casino is so big and that gets so much attention. Um, and there's a small office that's kind of a teaser inside the casino. And it has a few dioramas and uh, some information about the museum, but it's really meant to for people to go in and say, hey, there's something much larger that we need to look at. We just need to get one of the shuttle buses and go down and take a look. Um, however, a lot of people that go to Foxwoods see it as, oh, that's the museum. Yes. No, 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 no. There, there's an 85,000 square foot museum, uh, you know, a permanent exhibits is 85,000 square feet, which is twice the size of the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., um, right right here in, in the backyard of, of Foxwoods. So it's a great cultural asset. Uh, what I did there is I worked in the education department, um, giving tours, working with teachers to develop, uh, help them develop native, sensitively, culturally sensitive curriculum pieces involving native history, uh, which was a big part of, of what I did and uh, developed research projects. And uh, I, I just fell in love with, with research there. Wow. And then, and you know, that is huge. It really is. I mean, yes. and what I really enjoyed down there was the, uh, when you went to the, the village, mm -hmm. it's a replica, replica and, and they had these uh, stations that would, you could listen to, to you know, what the uh, description of the site or whatever you were looking at. Uh, it it kind of, you know, it brought things to life. That village was, um, and and what you're talking about is is on the bottom floor. It's right. a three level museum, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, it actually has uh, five levels, but you enter on the ground level, which is the third floor, and all of the exhibits are on the second and first floor. So for a great part of the exhibits, you're actually underground. Wow! And a lot of people don't huh. know that. Yeah, I didn't realize that. So when you walk into this village, it is an immersive experience, and you are 360 degrees surrounded by a recreated 16th century native coastal village. Wow. And uh, the life casts are dressed the way that um, Pequot people would have dressed. Um, in the 16th century, and you hear birds singing, uh, you smell, uh, there are two machines in that exhibit that actually are scent machines. So when you smell the campfire, yeah, you're smelling a, a replicated campfire. It's it's just so awesome. Now, I remember one of those uh, things that was set up had to do with the smallpox. Uh, yes. Um let me think. Yes. And, and you kind of like, you walked into the hut and then there were the, you know, the smallpox infested bodies of... Oh, yes. It, that was yeah. in the Palisade. Sorry about that. I you forgot mean, which The Palisade. That was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really, I mean, because you're already immersed anyway and then mm -hmm. you come upon this Palisade and, you know, it's like walking into totally another world. 
Yes, and that is actually uh, the demarcation of that in the exhibit is so subtle that you wouldn't know it, but we, we used to point that out to people that when you got near the end of that big room, and it's about two and a half acres, wow. that's that's how big this recreated village is inside the museum. So now you have a better scope. If, if this is one gallery, how big the actual museum is. And near the end of that room, there is a very large tree that has fallen over. And you have to walk under this tree to to get and, and it's up high. I mean you're not you're not gonna bump your head on it or anything. And on the other side of that is the palisade. And that's the point in time that we say, okay, before this tree was pre-contact, now we've come into the contact period. Now we have the Dutch and the English who aren't liking each other anyway. Now we get to the area of palisades and then you can actually go inside the palisade that was recreated and that is where one of the wigwams are that has the um, disease-ridden mm. body, uh, so to speak, right. you know, the life cast. Yeah. Now, these palisades, they always fascinated me because we had a, a palisade just as you, you crossed the bridge on the island, Indian Island. There was a palisade years and years ago when I was, when I was growing up. So, you know, it was years ago. It's gone now. But I remember that and I was always fascinated by it. It's amazing what... Um what what kind of feelings uh, Palisades evoke. And in that exhibit, when, when they built it, the first thing that you get from uh, any any group of kids anyway that come in on, on tour, school tours is, whoa, you know, look at that. It's a castle. Well, no, not really, but kind of, because we have this, this walled city. Think of it as a walled city. And castles certainly had walls around their cities. Um, so then we can start making correlations to what kids knew as far as um, European history and equating that to what was happening here. And that's when they really get fascinated by the uh, ability of Native people. And they've never made the connection before. Hey, Native people can build these things. And they could they could build these things with what they had around them. Yeah, uh, there were no the hammer and nails back then. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly not the way we know them. And nobody had a power drill. Right. So, and, and these things, I mean, they were huge. Oh, yes. It, I just, I was just uh, shocked <laughs> when I saw those. Yes. Uh, when uh, you think about uh, the size of a palisade, um, the Pequot massacre that happened um, May 26, 1637, uh, the, there were about 800 uh, men, women, and children that were killed uh, at the Mystic Fort. And that's one, that's one palisade. And there were 800 people that were in the fort that day. Wow. What people don't realize is the uh, warriors were not there. They were off because this was part of King Philip's war. They were off at another place. And who were left were the older men, uh, a few younger men, but certainly not all because they needed somebody to stay behind and help protect and women and children. Um, but they certainly didn't have the full complement of their village there that day. And it was still about 800 people. Wow. So that's how big they got. And that's a good thing for a map right there. <laughs> yes. Oh, they're working on that. <laughs> I'm sure they are. They have a whole uh, research department. I bet they do. I know they do. Uh, so, okay. So you have all this experience with the with the Pequot. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. And uh, the the Bangor, uh, why do I always draw a blank? The Bangor Historic uh, Society Center or whatever. Um, so from there you go to the Abbey. Yes. So tell me about the Abbey and. and uh, the the Abbey um, is actually the next next stop in my my museum career. Okay, <laughs> and and it is uh, it's a really interesting place. It's a it's a great place. Um, it's what a lot of people don't know by the name Abbey Museum is that um, our sole reason for being is to educate uh, people about the Wabanaki of Maine. And I had a very interesting question. Um, I've only been there since January. And um, the other night I went out to the Lions Club, uh, which they were a great group of people, just a wonderful group of people. And I actually got the question about, um, you know, can you tell me how, um, how the Abbey decides um, how it's going to divide up the money it gets in fundraising amongst the tribes? And I said, wow, um, none actually goes back to the tribes. So there's, there's a perception, there's a misperception about um, what the Abbey does and, and its role. And how, how it was put to me is that, um, you know, our, our tribes don't need the Abbey. Most of our tribes have their own cultural centers or their own museums uh, of sort, certainly their own uh, educators. And, uh, but what the Abbey does is is needs tribes and works very very hard to establish and maintain relationships with tribal people uh artisans um researchers professionals including that native voice and one of the most exciting things that's happening right now is decolonization you want to explain that oh i wish i could there's <laughs> i wish i had an elevator speech uh, for decolonization no maybe you should <laughs> i should um my my counterpart george is is working on an elevator speech for me uh decolonization that is a very new word in the museum field and one that uh staff at the abbey uh, the director and the curator are going to be traveling to uh, the american association of state and local histories conference this year and talking about that fact decolonization is really um simply put and, and i'm oversimplifying it is telling the story and of of history from not the colonized perspective. This means that the Abbey will take a more active role in um, making sure that it's a first voice kind of forum for Native people in Maine. That now, that's new for the Abbey, is that correct? It this, is. This sort of perspective? It is. Um, part of their uh, their process is was to at least bring another native person on board, which which was me, um, and they're very pleased and, and proud to state that the education department is entirely native now. So education programs are being developed and uh, delivered by native people from Maine in in the Abbey. Do you find that uh, that new uh, program. Do you find that to be um, highly uh, of, of high interest to people? Um, there is a certain level of validity that happens when Native people are teaching about Native people uh, because you don't have that voice. Um, 
a good example of this would be a few years ago um and and you know for a historian dates just are not my thing <laughs> i hate to say it but uh i fully admit it fully fully and freely uh, a few years ago there was the uncovering of the slave cemetery in new york uh new york city and it was not known to exist and there was a really big ruckus around the interpretation of what this cemetery meant and a, there was a lot of talk in the museum field about whose voice should be heard and a, it was really resoundingly decided that the only people that could tell about the the slave experience and the slave cemetery would be uh, African Americans and that can be seen in native uh, museums and native communities as well only it has not had as resounding a voice. And I think we're starting to get to that place now. Um, LD, certainly LD-291 in Maine has helped with that. And as you know, LD-291 states that all the schools in Maine have to teach about Wabanaki uh, people. Um, but it's an unfunded mandate. So that has left a lot of tribes with, hey, how do we help? You know, how do we get teachers to come to us and how do we fulfill that uh, that mandate? How do we help them complete their mandate uh, for education? And it's it's been an interesting, interesting thing, but certainly the Native voice is important. Hmm. So the Abbey is filling that, that void that... Uh... Yes. Um, we are working with an Institute of Museum and Library Services grant right now. It's a three-year grant process. Mm -hmm. And we are in year two, and this is uh, to help with the Wabanaki Initiative. We've been working with different tribes, or, or, or the, the tribes in Maine, the federally recognized tribes, as far as developing, having them develop lesson guides or lesson plans that we can get out to teachers. Uh, we will be reaching out to teachers for over the next year and a half. Uh, we will be making these lesson plans and other supportive documents available on our website. And uh, we're looking into webinars to reach a wider uh, teacher base throughout the state. So that initiative, um, we are acting as the liaison between teachers and tribes um, because what we're finding is tribal people, uh, the people, you know, the folks that you go in and you go to the admin offices in most tribes, They've got 19 hats. They're they're overworked. They're underpaid. They they just don't have all the time to respond to every teacher out there in Maine that needs to fulfill this this mandate uh, by the legislature. Uh, so that's where the Abbey is stepping in and really being the go-between, getting those lesson plans, getting the supportive material, and making it available on a wide scale for, for teachers in Maine. So they're going to be teacher workshops? Yes, there will be teacher workshops. Um, we're looking into webinars. What has happened over the last few years is um, school administrations don't have the luxury of the funding to give teachers a day for professional development. Um, for instance, you may have a history department in your local high school that has an in-service day, but their in-service day is so jam-packed with things that they need to do in order to 
make sure that all of their internal uh, policies and procedures are met and that all the teachers are working toward the same thing in the standardized testing every year, that they don't have the ability to bring in people like us uh, into those in-service days. So the teachers can't come out to us. We can't really go to the teachers. And the teachers in the classroom have so much to teach in a short amount of time. Uh, often they don't also have the luxury of funding to pay to bring folks into the classroom. So this is a way that we can help with that. This is the way that we can make material available to teachers to uh, meet that Wabanaki initiative and have it actually come from the tribal sources. We're just acting as the clearinghouse. Yeah, the, um, now you said you were having workshops. Now, are these workshops <laughs> webinar only or? Um, we're still working that out. What was in the original plan, uh, we've had to tweak a little bit. Um, for instance, uh, we we were going to go out to this all, all over the state and have meetings with teachers. Then we found out that, well, teachers aren't getting paid time to come do this professional development, so they're unlikely to do that on their own time. There are many dedicated teachers, but they also have families and they have lives of their own. So what we wanted to do was look at something that uh, would be more widespread uh, and we could connect. So we're combining the two. We're looking at webinar a webinar series. Uh, we're looking at making the plans available in print format on our website that they can download. And we're also um, looking at going out to possibly uh, one or two spots in each county uh, and letting teachers know where we are for a workshop that they can come to. Okay, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I mean, it sounds like you're uh, actually going to be reaching a lot more teachers. We're hoping for 800. That's our goal, to reach 800 teachers in Maine. How many teachers do you think there are in Maine? <laughs> more than 800. <laughs> well, more than 800, yeah. <laughs> a lot more. Uh, and are you, uh, are you working with the, uh, the tribal uh, uh, historical and cultural uh, offices? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because I do know, I know James uh, Francis has put in together lots of lessons in different areas, and um, I think the Passamaquoddies also have uh, They've lessons. Been, the tribes have been great, um, yeah. absolutely great in, in helping us develop lesson plans. These aren't, we're not developing the lesson plans. The tribes are developing the lesson right, plans. Right, and that's key, yeah. That, and that is so important uh, because that's what teachers wanted. A few years ago, I was uh, I had the opportunity to sit with tribes, uh, tribal representatives, and social studies teachers in Maine, and that was the one thing that came out is social studies teachers were saying, "But we want the first voice. If we want, if we're going to teach about this, we want it to come from you. But we don't know how to come to you." Now, was this a social studies conference? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. They, they have those what, every year. Yes, they do. Uh, they're pretty good. I went to uh, a, a few of them. Not, not a lot lately, but uh, they're very, uh, very educational, and uh, I really enjoyed being there because I was, uh, I think I was on a panel for one of those, and it, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's uh, the panels are wonderful. Um, I, I too w had the opportunity to be on one of those, and and it was, um, it was great. Uh, to see the interaction between 
uh, teachers and tribal representatives. And before that, not a lot of that had been happening. And we've made such strides um, in reaching out to one another over the past few years that that these these types of grants and these types of projects uh, will bridge the gap that's left. Now, are you working at all with the uh, the TRC people? Uh, we have reached out um, a little bit, and they've reached out to us, um, but that we have not formalized that partnership yet. Uh, but there has been there has been some talking <laughs> going on. Okay, so that's uh, in the future, I, I yes. guess. Yes, yes. Um, so I know the Abbey has uh, a number of uh, programs coming up. Uh, yes. Want to tell uh, me we, about some? I got a list here, but you oh, can good. start. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't memorized the entire website yet. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that we just did, um, George Neptune, uh, who is a master basket maker, uh, and he's a Passamaquoddy uh, basket maker, he just did a program uh, with candy baskets uh, on Saturday. And uh, one of the things that we say is, you know, please call when, when we're doing something like this. Please call for a reservation. Um, and he he actually had more children show up than he had supplies for so wow. there's a there's a great need uh we do storytelling and hands-on workshops um we do do teacher workshops um uh, there's the twisted path exhibit that just opened and right now through the end of april uh, is free admission so that, we have to go check that out. Yeah, you should. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Twisted Path Three is is an exhibit that showcases Native artisans and their response to environmental pressures uh, in through their artwork. And there are some amazing pieces that I just go and and stare at and and just get lost in. They're they're wonderful, wonderful pieces. You. Uh, I, I have a list of some of the Twisted Path feature artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you familiar with some of the, like, Gina Brooks? Yes. Her work? Yeah, there's Gina Brooks. Uh, Gabriel Frey is another one. Patricia Michaels is another one. Uh, we were so pleased to be able to get Patricia Michaels. She's, uh, I believe she's Taos Pueblo. She, if anybody's familiar with Project Runway, which is a fashion design reality show, she was actually runner-up on season three. So she came out and she did a brown bag speak, uh, speaking engagement for us. And um, she installed her pieces, which were really... When you look at them, you go, hey, wow, they're kind of interesting. But when I had the chance to talk to her, she said, uh, I said, you know, Patricia, I, I really appreciate the, your artwork. I said, it's really involved and different. It's intense. And she just didn't bat an eyelash. And she said, yeah, she said, you know, people need to realize that we Native women are not just sex objects and things to be beat up on. Here, here. And I said, Great. you go, girl. That's exactly right. Yeah. Now, is there uh, the, the Twisted Path, is that uh, still up, that exhibit? Is that gone past? No, Twisted Path 3 just opened in February, and it will be up through the end of December of this year. Oh, okay. So you have a, a while to come see it. Okay. And that's 
that's on exhibit inside the Abbey uh, that's located in, in Bar Harbor? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's that's on um, uh, Mount Desert Street, uh, and that's right in inside the building. Uh, come on in. It's right down the hallway, not far from not far from the door in the restroom. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> uh, and the uh, Will Wilson. Yes. Danae, what does he do? What's his his specialty? Do you remember? Oh yes, yes. Um, I I believe he is the artist that uh, is the signature piece that is for Twisted Path, our signature image. And he talks about, he doesn't talk about, he presents his idea of the native in a post-apocalyptic kind of environmental world. You know, the environment's gone to... Mm-hmm. gone bad in a really <laughs> bad way and he represents his images in photography about what he feels... Um, a native man would be in a wasted environment like that and still trying to uphold traditional uh, ceremony and life ways and while being bombarded by chemicals and poisons and even the, the overwhelming electronic age, uh, mm. which is a sort of devastation. Wow. Now that, I think, would be really worth... Uh Taking a look at it. Absolutely. Uh, now, I have a, a list of uh, programs. I've got one before me in April, but I know there's some in March. Yeah, here's March. <laughs> uh, you've got the... Uh, You've got a progressive dinner. Is that passed? I think it is. Uh, yes, that one has passed. Okay. Oh, oh this is what I want to hear about. The PK... MDI, what is that? <laughs> the PKMDI, that's, um, that is uh, a Pachacacha. Uh, Do you pronounce that again? Pachacacha. <laughs> um, okay. Pachacacha is kind of a, a, it's such an interesting thing that started in Japan. Um, it is a, a presentation, a video presentation, and um, anybody who's familiar with the PowerPoint slideshow, you have 20 slides and you have 20 seconds to talk about each slide. So really, you don't get more than just over two minutes for an entire presentation. Wow. And you can use them in the legislature. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Yeah. Uh, they're very popular. Uh, a lot of conferences have like Pachacacha Night and uh, the, I know they're really big in Bangor. They just get tons and tons of people. And MDI is also in on this and they get quite a few people. There are so many characters that come out uh, and there's no theme. You, you can talk about anything you want to talk about, but you just have to keep it to 20 slides and 20 seconds a slide. Wow. Then you don't, you must have it limited to yes. a number of how many you can be there. And yes, there's there's always a screening process. Oh, so and, there is a screening process. You just don't bring any. Right. You just yeah. you just don't bring in anybody or or anything. Um, now, are these all this, this is this all native related? No, okay. no, not at all. Uh, see, what the Abbey also does is it's a community partner, and other other organizations and other types of things like this. Uh, can have their events at the Abbey. I see. 
So the Abbey is also uh, rentable for things like, you know, weddings and, and whatnot. So, so this... <laughs> How do you pronounce it? Pachakcha. Pach- p- whatever. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. For the longest time, I called it Pikachu. <laughs> yeah. So is it is it this a, a rented night, a rented space, or is this... Uh, I believe I believe it is. Um, I'm not I'm not involved with that that program very much, uh, or at all at this who, point. Who came up with that program? I'm not sure. Uh, that was established long before I got there. I know uh, George Neptune is very involved, and he usually uh, does a lot of speaking uh, at it, and and sometimes hosts it. So yeah. when it's at the Abbey, he, he hosts. He's, yeah, he's yeah. really good. Oh, yeah, he absolutely. is. He's very good. Yeah. Now there's uh, also the Thursday uh, on March 20th is a brown bag lunch series. Yes. On Thursday, there is a brown bag lunch, uh, lunch chat. What we're trying to do is trying to get as many of the Twisted Path artisans to come in and speak about their work. And if we can't uh, actually get the, the current Twisted Path artisans, we're going with past artisans uh, who have not spoken before. So last, last month, it was actually George talking about his basketry and what it's like to be a, a traditional basket maker in in contemporary society and as an artist and how his art influences his life and how his culture influences his art. Yeah, and this one is with uh, Gabriel Fry. Yes, Gabe Fry. He is excellent. Yes, he he's is. excellent. And he's won a number of uh, Master Basket Prizes, I understand. Yes, he has some fantastic work. Yep, so he's going to be there. Um, so, okay, now that's... Now in April, there's another another artist we have, and Gina Brooks. Yes. Um, I'm not sure. From here, she's a Maliseet. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, uh, let's see, this year's exhibit, uh, Questions of Balance focuses on indigenous perspectives on environmental impact and conservation and invites visitors to consider Native American concerns about the environment through the lens of a contemporary art. Uh, Gina Brooks. So it's it's environmental. Yes, she's one of the current Twisted Path 3 artisans and uh, she will also be uh, talking again about her her artwork and her views of of the environment and how natives are are working within that that context. Yeah, and then so this really looks interesting. On the April seventeenth, the uh, twenty fourteen uh, Wampanoaghi Student Art Show. Yes, the Student Art Show. We're very excited about this. Um, we actually. Uh, are are getting those art pieces in this week, and from from the all of the high schools is that where it's uh, coming from? Or no, these are from uh, right now. We have the Penobscots and the Passamaquoddies who are uh, participating in this, and next year we hope to include the Micmac and the Maliseet. So we have a true uh, for you know for federally recognized tribe uh, perspective on student art. Um, each year, we have been getting artwork. Uh, there's a whole contest that happens in the in the schools, uh, in the tribal schools, and uh, students make art. And there's not a theme 
they can make anything they want and submit it. Uh, the pieces that are chosen to be in the art show will be matted and framed and then hung in the Abbey Gallery uh, for a period of time. And it actually brings international recognition to the next generation of Wabanaki artisans. And it, it's we have people from all over the world come to the Abbey. Their last count, there were are 2.4 million people that come to Acadia, and uh, quite a few of those people stop by and get to see uh, what these students are doing. So the exposure is tremendous, and it's also great work for self-esteem uh, to know that you know your your 12-year-old's work or your pre-K, <laughs> your toddler's work is on display at a, an, right. an internationally seen museum. Do you, now, do you like uh, take photos of these pieces of work and put them into a book or something? To uh, uh, They're cataloged, um, but uh, we haven't done anything as far as publishing them. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me that to, to exhibit them for, uh, I don't know how long ever you do, and then put them in a closet someplace, it just... I think um, they should be accessible to people who really say, you know, I really would like to see what they've done over the years. The Abbey right now is working on, uh, well, first of all, I have to say these these artist pieces don't belong to us. They belong mm -hmm. to the students, so they go back to the students. Right. Um, but the Abbey is working and, and like every other museum, has a backlog of getting exhibits up online because, That's a good idea, you know, online. we do too feel that uh, you know, for the millions and millions of people who don't make it to the Abbey, that we want we want them to know about these artisans and not just the students' arts, but the the other exhibits that we've done. So we uh, really rely on volunteers and interns uh, to help help us upload those materials onto the web. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a, an interesting one too. It's a it's a called the it's a spring break activities mm -hmm. it's the uh new uh the storytellers oh yes that's um that's another uh project uh through through george um he is our museum educator and a lot of the, the break activities are uh, run by him um storytelling is a big part of what he does as well as uh, the basket making. Yeah, the uh, description here. And for people listening, you can go to the uh, Abbey Museum uh, website and get all of this information from there. Uh, but it describes the storytelling program. It says the first program of its kind to be offered at the Abbey Museum. The Storytellers will be a three-day performing arts program that culminates in an original performance for the greater community. Museum educator George Neptune, who received his Bachelor of Arts degree in the theater from Dartmouth College, will lead those in attendance in writing, directing, and acting in an original play. That's fantastic. Yes. Yes. He, right. he not only uh, lives the art, but he teaches the art of, of acting. He's, he's really, truly a gift. I take that myself. <laughs> <laughs> you should. Come on down. We'd love to see you. Um. Okay, is there uh, is there anything you know that you're doing uh, that you're really uh, into and really enjoy doing at the at the Abbey? Um, one of the big pieces is research. Um, I have 
uh, several projects that that I'm working on, but one is um, that we're work we're hoping to to happen next year is our coming home exhibit. And although we haven't put anything out in the press about it, um, currently I'm working with the tribes to um, identify pieces of culture, tribal culture that have ended up in museums. Um, from here to Washington, D.C. And what we're hoping to do is have uh, community curators from those tribes help identify pieces that they would like to see come back uh, for a year in an exhibit at the Abbey. And the community curators will also help us uh, interpret these pieces. And it will be an opportunity for the tribes to come in and look at things that, um, that they have known about but didn't have access to uh, to be able to research those and maybe learn uh, revitalize older techniques uh, you know beadwork uh, woodwork uh, a lot of other types of of artisan techniques and take those back to the tribe uh, and create new learning programs out of them but we're really hoping to to bring some of these pieces home, and uh, we are currently looking for funding for this type of of exhibit, because um, you know some someday we hope to get over you know and and bring some pieces back from maybe Europe that that have ended up because Wabanaki art has gone global, um, mm. and who knows how much is out there. Yeah, yep. Um, the so you know, it it kind of reminds me of the the Sotheby sale of the uh, Hopi artifacts. Uh, that was a huge thing, and uh, I guess they got some of them back. Uh, but uh, yeah, we do have artifacts out there that are that are ours, and uh, it would be uh, it would be great to to get them back. Yeah, at least for so. a little while to visit with them, <laughs> <laughs> or permanently. Yeah, that's what we want, permanent. Uh, so uh, any th last thing you'd like to leave us with? Or? No, I, I, I really love uh, being on the show. Thank you very much. I know the Abbey uh, was very excited that, that I would be on here today. And we hope to see everybody come see our Twisted Path 3. Remember, through the end of April, it is free admission. All right. Well, it's good to have you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank my special guest, Jennifer Pictou, Curator of Education at the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor. And thank you to Amy, Amy Brown, our engineer. And tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>